0: One of the, um, there was something that a professor of mine said a few years ago, he's teaching on the Old Testament, and he said something that really uh, hit me. It was striking to me, and um, he was talking about uh, this passage, uh, this, the servant of the Lord passages in the book of Isaiah, which are... About well, it's about Israel in part, but as you follow along in the Book of Isaiah, the servant of the Lord goes from being the the nation of Israel to this solitary individual um, that we know is the Lord Jesus. But in to the Old Testament uh, believers, uh, it wasn't obvious who this is. This solitary individual. And whereas the uh, nation of Israel is called the servant of Yahweh and the son of, the son of God, in a sense, who is commissioned to do what Adam had not done. And, of course, we know what happened with Adam and we know what happened with Israel. But this solitary individual comes on the scene and uh, uh, in Isaiah 50, uh, in verse 4, uh, he, this this uh, servant of the Lord is speaking, and he says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. This is the English Standard Version. I know it's not it's as beautiful as the King James sometimes, but the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear, to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced and therefore I have set my face like a flint And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? And so on. And what this professor said at this point, he said, these are the words of Christ not written in the gospel. And I thought of Jesus... On the uh, you know the the place called Gabbatha, where the accused would stand before Pilate, and that's where the Roman soldiers were smiting Jesus, plucking out his beard, and beating him. And we don't we do not have a record in the Gospels of what Jesus was thinking and feeling and praying and saying. But here in this Old Testament book, we have the words of Christ not recorded in the gospel and it it gave me such a thrill to see that we have a window into what our lord and savior was experiencing on our behalf my uh, message tonight the message tonight is on uh, psalm psalm 88 and i guess i should give titles to these messages Uh, the, the message the title i have for this message is actually taken from one Psalm, Psalm 139, verse 12. Psalm 139, verse 12, verse 11 says, If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me. And then in verse 12 it says, Even the darkness is not dark to you. Uh, Night is as uh, bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So the title of this message is, Even the darkness is not dark to you. Uh, I think it's safe to say that probably everybody in this room, at one time or another, every believer has gone through the valley of the shadow of death, sometimes literally, sometimes figuratively, and the, 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 the truth that we want this message to convey that though we, we walk, we do have seasons. Where there are difficulties and trials, and we go through the, that, uh, and we may encounter um, inexplicable suffering, suffering that we cannot explain, and we don't understand why. Um, you know, we can always say, Well, it's the devil, uh, but sometimes that's not enough to comfort people, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, sometimes things are a little more complex, and uh, of course there is a devil, we don't deny that, but sometimes we go through some things uh, and, and, you know, you wonder why. I mean, um, I can say in our lives we've, we've been in the midnight hour when it didn't look like we were sinking. It looked like we were on the bottom of the, the sea and all hope was gone. And uh, been, we've been through trials, as I'm sure many of you have, where it was no fun. It's fun to write books about being, having the victory over trials. It's fun to hear testimonies about the trials. But it's, I've never found it to be fun to go through the trial. And I've been through some trials where on my own internal time clock, I felt that, Lord, this is about as long as this should last. And then... I've gotten accustomed to going into an overtime on that with the Lord, and that's fine. I'm comfortable with that, an overtime, time and an overtime. But we've been through some seasons where we were in uh, overtime on the overtime on the overtime on the overtime. We went way, way, way past the point where we were already way, way past the point that I thought this should end. And you go to bed thinking about it. And you get up in the morning, and it's it's right there on top of you. And um, gut wrenching things you can't tell and talk with other people. And um, um, and and of course, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's that's a truth that's we we know and we act upon, and we're to, to take authority over the devil. But have you ever taken authority over the devil and he didn't seem to know it? You know? Have you ever rebuked him? And, and I know, I know, I'm with, I'm with faith people, and I'm a faith person, but I mean, I'm also like to just be real honest about this. I've had times where, you know, you rebuke the devil and he didn't seem to hear and, and then uh, you do get into some mysteries of the faith, you know? Have you discovered there's some things about God that you're just not going to understand in this life? Uh, I, I like what Tim Keller said. He said, if God is who he says he is, he's going to say some things and do some things that you don't understand. And, and I mean, that's, that's true. We don't have to get uh, metaphysical about this. We do have authority over the devil, but sometimes you get into a situation where you can't think of anything that you you, you know we, we can say, well, you opened the door, or you weren't prayed up enough, or wh- whatever, uh, and you can repent of, of all of that, and still that thing can be just staring you in the face. And I, I again, I, I don't be controversial or Overly complex, but um, you know nothing can happen unless God allows it to happen honestly, I mean in in that respect, and so you're then dealing with this situation, well Lord, why why would you even allow me to get into this or be blindsided uh, by a situation? why, why, and no answer <laughs> you know not, not getting answers for a long time but what, what I'd like to, to, to see through this message is that when we go through times like that, uh, as Psalm 139.12 says, the darkness is not dark to God. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with him. And there's a reason for that, and it is because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I want to read this psalm to you, Psalm 88. Psalm um, 88. Uh, I had to do a paper for a course I took on Christ-centered preaching and preaching Christ from the Old Testament, and I thought, this is as far from, this is as far away as I could get from an obvious answer to seeing Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, This is the kind of psalm where you'd think there might be barriers up around it with blinking lights that say, you know, stay away from this. I don't know... Uh, unless you can see Christ in this Psalm, I don't know why anyone would pray it. Um, the, the the there is a, a scholar by the name of James Boyce who who's wrote this. He said the powerful descriptive phrase "dark night of the soul" comes from the writings of the European mystics. It's a it's a translation of the title of a book by a Spanish monk, and he says, "What is the dark night of the soul?" It is a state of intense spiritual anguish in which the struggling, despairing believer feels he is abandoned by God. Now, we're not going to camp there. That's not where we stay. But we have to be real that people do go through things like that. And um, even though, like I say, the things that Mary and I have gone through, we know God hadn't abandoned us. We knew that. On, on an intellectual level, and even on a heart level, but on an emotional level, and we are emotional human beings. God made us that way. It, it felt like it felt like that, and, and people go through that. Well, uh, this is a lament. There's different kinds of psalms. There's psalms of praise. There's psalms of thanksgiving. Um, there are royal psalms that that speak directly about the Messiah but this is a lament which is really a comfort that to know that it's scriptural to complain there is a Bible way to complain before the Lord all complaining is not uh, illegal this there is a legal way to complain before the Lord and that's why I love the book of Psalms uh, I try to explain this overseas but they didn't. They they most people overseas never have heard of ABC Wide World of Sports, but you remember the the beginning of that, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, and that wonderful scene of that that alpine uh, uh, jumper who's tumbling down helter skelter down the ski jump, and it's just an apt description of the Book of Psalms. It describes every possible human emotion on the continuum of human emotion. From from the thrill of victory to the agony of defeat. There is no human experience that's not described in the Psalms. And that's why, just as an exhortation wholly apart from this message, I want to encourage you, if you're not in the book of Psalms, to just rediscover it. Because it will lead you through the darkest places and help you teach us to pray uh, on the high places. And uh, it, it trains us. How to express ourselves to God in, in a variety of, of, of situations. And, and this book has helped us um, uh, tremendously in the tough times and uh, so I want to recommend that. And I said this last night, I think, that this is Jesus quoted from the book of Psalms more than any other book of the Old Testament. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, I'm sure, memorized the whole book of Psalms. He said it's, it's a miniature Bible. He said it's a summary of the whole Bible in the book of Psalms. So uh, uh, this is a lament, but this is a lament like no other lament in the Psalter. There is no other lament in the book of Psalms like this one. Uh, The psalmist complains that he's troubled unto death. His cries to God uh, seemingly go unanswered. And he feels forgotten and forsaken. God's wrath washes over him in waves. And he's terrorized. Don't you love scriptures that throw a wrench in your theology? I mean, they just mess with you. It's like, wait a minute, this doesn't fit in my box. You know, we, we all run into some scriptures like that once in a while. If you've got everything figured out, you're in trouble. If you, you think you've got God in that box, I'm telling you, he's not going to stay there. So, And I'm not saying that he's the author of these things. I'm just not going there, okay? I'm not saying God... I'm just reading this scripture the way it is, okay? We're just going to the, play the ball where it lies, all right? So I'm, I just, you know, don't overthink it. But you've been there. Wherever your theology, whatever your theological background has been, or no theological background, you have been here, okay? And so, uh, the, 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 you know, he sees no way out. And a scholar by the name of Derek Kidner said, this is the saddest prayer in this altar. H.C. Leupold wrote, it is the gloomiest psalm found in the scriptures. The psalmist is as deeply in trouble when he has concluded his prayer as he was when he began it. Aren't you glad you came tonight? J.J. Stewart Perone said, This is the darkest, saddest psalm in all the Psalter. What? Why did God put it in here? It is one wail of sorrow from beginning to end. And very tellingly, in the Hebrew, the last word of this psalm is darkness, it ends in darkness. Glory, hallelujah. Uh, let's read it. O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. By the way, that's the high point of the psalm right there. It goes down from here. O Lord, Yahweh, that's his covenant name. And that, That's an indication to us. This psalmist, who by the way is, is Heman the Ezraite, was one of the sons of Korah? Uh, you know, a little spoiler, we know from history that you know for Heman actually went through this. Okay? This is Heman talking. We have to understand what the, the writer of this psalm was going through at the time it was written. We don't know, have too much detail on the psalms. We don't always know when they're written. Uh, we don't know exactly what Heman's going through, but we know he's one of the sons of Korah. He was an intelligent man. He was a musician. He was a sage. And later, uh, things turn out for, for uh, Heman. I mean, he, he, he's okay, all right? But at this point, it's not okay. And there's more to this psalm than meets the eye, as we will see. He says, "Oh Yahweh, God of my salvation. Those are words of salvation. This man, you know, he knows something. Heman knows something about the Savior of Israel. He says, let my prayer come. I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more. For they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. And you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. And then he asks, Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love, your covenant love, declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? This man is, sounds angry. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Oh, Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long, and they close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Full stop. There, of course, are a lot of people who have written commentaries on the Psalms, and and these are brilliant people, by the way. Um, We don't always agree with them, but they're smart people. And um, one of them... In the Bible knowledge commentary, his take on the psalm was uh, part of it, part of it, just part of it, was to emphasize the psalmist's diligence and determination. Now, now look, I, need to, I, don't, I don't want you to take debate the wrong way. I'm telling you this for a reason, because I, I want you to see the difference between a redemptive reading of this psalm. Because remember, we talked about the road to Emmaus. There's a few people that weren't here last night, I think. on the road to Emmaus, Jesus said, the law and the psalms and the prophets uh, testify to me. And so we have permission. We have a commission from the Lord Jesus to read the psalms through uh, Christ-centered lenses. We are told by the Lord Jesus we're to understand the Psalms Christocentrically. How do they center up on Christ? And so that's because the overall theme of the Scripture, which is part of the context in which we read the Bible, is redemption. God saves sinners. That's the big story of the, of the Bible. You know, I liken this to playing, like, soccer. We call it football in Asia. Or, or American football. But the ball moves around a little faster in, in uh, soccer when it's play, play, the game is played right. And um, I think of the soccer field uh, as the overall context of scripture. Uh, this morning in the meeting we had this morning with the ministers, we talked about reading scripture and understanding the immediate context, that is the, the, the verse or verses that you're studying. But we also need to look at the larger context of the chapter and book in which those verses appear. And then thirdly, we need to consider how does the overall context of all Scripture, what does it bring to bear on the meaning of this passage? That's what I mean by reading it redemptively. How, do we, how does this psalm testify to Christ as, as Graham Goldsworthy has said? How does it testify to Christ? Now, what I'm telling you is, I want to give you a couple examples of some readings that are not redemptive. But they're very common. You will often hear sermons like this Uh, in the Bible Knowledge Commentary. the, The emphasis is upon the psalmist's diligence and determination to pray in spite of his extreme suffering. Okay? In itself, that's... Could be a good thing. Okay. We'll come back to that. Another commentator said this. He said he, he, he made some assumptions here. He's, he's kind of theorizing. And he, said he sort of saw the psalmist as an individualist, uh, you know, an individualist at heart, a nominal believer who attempts to dictate his own terms to God only to be bitterly disappointed in the end and therefore uh, he serves as an object lesson to Christians who are similarly tempted to go it alone and, and lack real commitment to the faith. These are my words. This is my summary of what he's saying. He, this man, uh, Heman, is a nominal believer. Uh, he's trying to dictate his own terms to God, and this is an object lesson to all of us that uh, when we're tempted to go it alone, go on our own, and we lack real commitment to the faith, and the end of the matter is that, quote, this black psalm is a warning to us all, close quote. Well, the problem with readings like that is they contribute very little in the way of a redemptive understanding of the passage. In other words, they don't show people the way out. It's like telling people, you know, God has saved you, and now you're on your own, do your best. But salvation, which includes justification, sanctification, redemption from the curse of the law, and all the way on up through ultimate glorification, through the resurrection of our body, all of that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Um, The the, theologians like to say justification fuels sanctification. They're they're separate, but they're organically related. It's not like uh, okay, you're saved now. Sanctify yourself. That's that's really what I read is the message of Galatians, is not okay. Now that you're saved, sanctify yourself. It's are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect uh, by the flesh? So um, here in this uh, passage, I oh man. Electronics are wonderful. Um, So so those types of expositions really don't contribute to a redemptive understanding of the psalm, and they do not evoke or promote or inspire a grace-based power or motivation for obedience. To just say this is an object lesson to us all, you know, uh, don't do that. Or um, wow, this this psalmist he really was diligent in his prayer in spite of extreme suffering. I mean that that is commendable, really, truly. But does it show you the way out? Not really. So the other another problem with an exposition like that is that it generally points more to the psalmist than it does to God. And I, I you know. I, I read this once, when you walk out of a sermon, when people walk aw- away from your sermon uh, anytime, we ought to ask, was that sermon more about Jesus or was it more about me? If it's more about you, it's, it's not focused on the cross and uh, the cross of Christ, which is the power of God. So um, the other thing... Um, Besides those two things, number one, it doesn't really give you a a redemptive view. Number two, it it puts the focus on the person instead of Christ. Thirdly, it neglects to consider a principle that I don't know if you're aware of this, uh, that the psalmist, many times, the psalmist is not just speaking as an individual. Many times the psalmist is representative of the king. And he's speaking corporately on behalf of all the people and uh, on behalf of the whole nation of Israel, which leads us to be mindful of Christ, who was numbered with the transgressors and bore the sin of many and takes his place among the dead after experiencing the fullness of God's wrath on our our part. It's it's just a brilliant key to understanding the Psalms. Luther felt that all the psalms were the voice of Christ speaking, except where it was apparent that it could not be. But just across the board, most Old Testament scholars uh, employ this principle where they understand that many times, because we're talking about a, a tool that was part of the worship of Israel, so they're not reading it just as we would read it today, but this was the prayer book of Israel, and it was the prayer book of the early church. And it was the prayer book of the church for centuries and centuries. Uh, unfortunately, we've tended to, to neglect it a bit. But the way Israel saw it is this is part of their liturgy or their worship. And, and they, the psalmist was speaking many times on behalf of all the people. So with that viewpoint here, Heman is not just speaking about his own experience, but all of Israel. And I want to develop that thought. Or we could say the people of God. H- hold on to that thought. Let's put a tack in it, as they say, a pin in that, and let's come back to that. Because, there's, there, again, there's more to that than meets the eye. If this is Heeman speaking on behalf of all of Israel, then then we have to look at, um, you know, uh, what's the outcome for them and for us. So uh, this man, Graham Goldsworthy, I told the, the ministers this morning about it. He wrote something that um, is very, very good, and it is this. He simply said this. He said, no Bible passage yields its true significance. No Bible passage yields its true significance without reference to Jesus Christ in his gospel. Later, Goldsworthy added this. He said, once you uh, understand what the, the psalm itself was about, what it meant then and there when it was written. He said it's, it's, your, your understanding, your study of the psalm is not completed until you relate the text of the psalm to the overall pattern of redemptive history as it finds its fulfillment in Christ. This is the, this is the obligation of New Testament believers who follow the interpretive example Of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're going to read the Bible the way Jesus said it should be read, we need to read the Psalms in the light of the overall redemptive context of Scripture. Also, those types of uh, expositions or explanations of the Psalm, they fail to emphasize that the Psalm invites us to reflect upon the, you know, does God work wonders in the grave? Do, do the dead rise up to praise Him? Those expositions fail to recognize that this psalm invites us to consider uh, the wonders, the steadfast love, the faithfulness, and the righteousness that God has wrought through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, who are dwelling in darkness and the region and shadow of death, Matthew 4:16. And they lack reflection upon Christ's passion, which is visible in the psalmist's litany of sorrows here, uh, that he has been placed in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep, overwhelmed by waves of wrath, abandoned by his friends, with his soul sorrowful unto death. I'm borrowing language from the New Testament there. Daniel Estes is a is a, a, a biblical scholar, and he wrote this. He said, the language of Psalm 88 anticipates, in other words, looks forward to the actual experience of Jesus as he receives the full force of the wrath of God on him while bearing the sins of humanity on the cross. When Jesus' disciples stood at a distance from the cross in Luke 23, 49, their actions echoed the language of Psalm 88.8 when the psalmist laments that the Lord has distanced his friends from him. And so looking at this passage through a Christ-centered, cross-conscious lens, even though the passage makes no explicit reference to Christ or the Messiah, the, the redemption which the psalmist eye has not seen, nor his ear heard, nor have entered into his heart, is nevertheless strongly hinted at by, the, by, first of all, his confession of faith in Yahweh, the God of his salvation, and by the questions that he's asking the Lord. When he's asking God, you know, do you do wonders for the dead? Do the dead rise up to, to praise you? Is your faithfulness known in the grave? And you get the sense that inwardly, this psalmist, he's desperate. He, he, there's no escape, but he has a sense that, that, that the, the nature of this God whom he worships uh, is able to deliver sinful human beings out of a death from which they cannot deliver themselves. Resurrection is hinted at by the questions of the psalmist here. Derek Kidner said this, they're reminiscent of the groanings in Romans Romans 8.22 and verses following. You remember that? The whole creation groaneth and is in travail now, and we also groan waiting for the uh, uh, adoption of sons, the the resurrection of the body. Um, So, If we're going to read the Bible contextually, which is the only way to really understand what is written there, um, it compels this approach. We can't just say this is a lesson that we should pray hard no matter what's going on. Or that, wow, this is a good lesson to all of us. Let's not be like Heman. (laughs) You know, help Help. So, um, Brian Chappell, one of my professors, said this, an accurate interpretation requires preachers to ask, how does this text help disclose the meaning or need of redemption? He said, regard for context requires preachers to consider a text in the light of its purpose and the redemptive message that unfolds throughout all of Scripture. Um, And and this is so important I said this, I think, last night. We're not trying to find Jesus where he's not. We're not trying to look behind every bush and tree in the Old Testament and say, oh, I think this is Jesus. Or, uh, you know, like my students were telling me about Judges 19 when I asked them, how can you possibly relate this gruesome story to the Savior? And some said, well, I've had students say that the the concubine is Jesus because she died, meaning she's symbolic of Jesus dying for us. I said, no, that doesn't work. Well, the Levite is Jesus uh, because he went after his, his concubine, which the Bible, by the way, you know, the Bible doesn't condone that, but that's the way it was, and it was allowed, and the scripture actually calls the Levite her husband. Uh, you know, and so the students were impressed with this guy because she had been unfaithful to him and he went out after her and, and uh, tried to get her to come back. And I pointed out to them, well, you know what? He's got another wife at home. Wife number one. Number one, <laughs> first of all. <laughs> In terms of how good a guy this is. How wonderful he is. His, real, his first wife, his real wife, the original wife is at home, probably taking care of the children, and he's traveling with this concubine. It sounds like a a, a, a relationship of convenience to me. And then his true colors come out when uh, they're attacked, and 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 the, the 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 heathen in that that town. What was the name of that town? I forget. Anybody remember? Anyway, it was people from the tribe of Benjamin, and they were trying to pull the men out, you know, to to have sex with them. And so the men. Sent out the concubine, delivered the concubine to them, and she was abused all night. That when they woke up in the morning, she was, she was dead. And so the Levite, I'm telling you, it's the most gruesome story in, in the Bible. I mean, this is not for Sunday school, I guess. I don't know. Uh, uh, dismembers her, cuts her up in 12 pieces, and send her to all the tribes of Israel, and they convene and say, What are we going to do? And we're basically, they're going to slaughter the, the men of Benjamin, and so on and so forth. I said, look, uh, the Levite can't be Jesus because look at him. You think he's a great guy? Look how, what he did with his concubine. What did he do? Um, you know, that passage invites, you don't have to find Jesus in that chapter to know that that, that chapter invites a comparison between the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. Gave himself for his bride, sacrificed himself. This is why Paul says, Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church, and gave himself for her. And you cannot read Judges 19 without being confronted with the vast distance between Christ and the Levite. Jesus sacrifices himself for his bride, the Levite sacrifices his bride for himself. The Levite saves his skin. Uh, and sacrifices her. Jesus gives up his life for us. And, you know, we're not talking about finding Christ in a passage or making things up. There are passages in the Old Testament where we could clearly say, this is the Lord Jesus, like the one I read you from Isaiah 50 or Isaiah 53, uh, 4 and five, passages like that. But um, if you get into that kind of it's allegory. It's allegorizing. It's fictional. And that's not good. It's not good to look in in the Bible and try to make up things that aren't really there. But this is what chapel said. Our, our point is not to discover uh, where Christ is mentioned in every biblical text, but to uh, determine how every text stands in relation to Christ. And there's a big difference. When we look at this passage, I'm not saying that necessarily that Heman has to be Jesus here, although I do think that the parallels are striking, just like in Psalm 22. But you don't have to go there. You can just say, how does this psalm relate to Christ? And we begin to see many, many, many perils. Reading the psalm in the light of the redemptive work of Christ forces us to to view it from the perspective of Christ's victory over uh, disorientation, dis- discouragement, uh, despair, and, and death. And a failure to read this psalm through that Christocentric lens, a failure to read it redemptively, is, a f- is to fail to connect it with the gospel. L- listen to what Graham Goldsworthy said. He's an Australian scholar. He said, we should not be seduced into thinking that the psalms can speak from and of themselves to us. If they speak to us of God, they must speak to us of the God who has finally revealed himself in Jesus Christ. If they speak to us of sinners, they speak to us of those who are outside Christ. If they speak of the judgment of God, they speak to us of the curse of the law that Christ suffered for his people on the cross. If they speak to us of the faithful, the godly, or the righteous, they speak to us first of Christ and only then of those who are redeemed in Christ. The preacher must constantly ask of the Psalms, how do they testify to Christ? And as we read Psalm 88 in that light, we come to understand something the psalmist does not. Because we know something Heman did not. And we come to understand that there's one who is coming, who will absorb the wrath of God, which is engulfing Heman. And that that one will rise triumphantly from the grave because God does indeed work wonders for the dead and they do rise up to praise Him. And in a way that is, was mysterious to Old Testament believers, Old Covenant readers of these Psalms, but that has been made manifest to us through the Gospel, is that it will be seen in Christ that the psalmist's dark night of the soul is actually related to Yahweh's faithfulness and uh, the blood of His eternal covenant. It will be the darkness that Christ endures for us that ensures the arrival of our resurrection dawn. And as Chapel said, redemptive truth in an Old Testament passage may only be a seed form of that which later comes to full flower in the ministry of Jesus. We're talking about preaching Christ in Him crucified, seeing Christ in all of Scripture. How can we read and pull more from the Psalms? How can we be more enriched as we read them? How can we glorify Christ more? How can we move ourselves out of the picture and Christ into the picture? There's a reason why the four and twenty elders are continually falling on their faces before the throne of God. And crying out, all glory and honor and majesty and power be unto the Lamb. There's a reason. I, I, I can't prove this in Scripture. I don't know. We'll find out. It won't be long before we're all there. But I, 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 God is infinite. God's love is infinite. And how long does it take to plumb the depths of infinite love? Just in, you know, our short lifespans, we see an uh, ever-increasing depth in what Jesus did for us. If we're thinking about the gospel, it is continually unfolded to us how deeply he has redeemed us. I I suspect that the 4 and 20 elders just can't get over that. It's just ever deeper. Look, the more we would discover of the holiness of God, the more we would realize the unholiness of sin and how desperate our condition was and how he saved us, how he redeemed us. You know, there's a reason why most of the best movies, books, poems, songs uh, they generally have some kind of a redemptive theme. And and even though these writers and poets and artists and producers, e- even though they, they may never have read the Bible, they cannot escape their DNA. And all humanity intuitively knows, I'm lost. I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man walking. And... Uh, all the stuff you see in the world in the paper, all the agitation and and distress and struggling is is born out of a uh, you know this this desire to justify themselves. don't stone me I'm an american I'm a red-blooded American, but you know when you come back into the country and you haven't been here a while, you see things through a different with a different lens and and something that has just overtaken America. Uh, I mean, I mean it's, it's, not a, it's not necessarily a sin. I'm not saying it's sinful at all. I'm just saying it's so apparent. It's not true all over the world, but this, you know, I don't even know, you know, this fist pumping, and you see it in the sports, you know, and the guy, you know, he makes a touchdown and he's looking at the guy, and, you know, like this. What's that about? What What is that, you know? Where, where you're looking at the guy and, you know, what, what are you so angry about? What, what, what is it with you? And it's a sense of, you know, people all over the world don't do that. They have their own things. But um, it's so easy, you know, for the spirit of the world to get into the church. And, and we, we get deceived because we don't realize it's all about justification. There was a movie, you'll think I'm crazy, I wept. When I saw Pele, you know, the Pele, the, the Brazilian soccer player, if you haven't seen that movie, it's, I liked it. You, you, but I wept because they were so poor. Did you see that movie? Did anybody see Pele? Okay, well, I'm going to ruin it for you. You won't have to buy the movie. <laughs> Pele was the youngest player ever to go to the World Cup. I don't think any, anybody has surpassed that. And for a long time, he may still hold the record for most goals scored in some arena, maybe overall, all season, or in the World Cup. But but uh, Brazil is a country of, of many races, and uh, uh, the people group that Pele came from were probably slaves from Africa, and they intermarried, and they were oppressed and pushed down, and, and Brazil struggled you know, on the world stage. And they had a completely different style of play that, that they had developed called Jenga, uh, I think. And it was sort of ha- had a mixture of martial arts and other stuff. And if you've ever seen Brazil play soccer, they, they, that, that's why they call it the beautiful game. It's incredible. But the Europeans had a different style. So I don't remember all the story. I've got to cut this short. But they went to the World Cup. They got beat. They got bottles and broke them and came after the other team. It was a big scandal on the world stage. They were humiliated on top of their humiliation. And you see Pele's father, who had been a a football player himself, was injured, and now he's ended up cleaning toilets, very dirty toilets. And his family's dirt poor in the jungle. They have a a wireless radio that they're listening to the World Cup. And, um, you know, Pele's... um, uh, up on the roof, listening through a hole in the roof. And um, when Brazil is beat, you just see the tears welling up in their eyes because that meant so much to them. When Pele meets his daddy coming out, he sees, says to his daddy, he says, Pai, the name for Papa. Pai, he said, I will win the World Cup. I will win the World Cup for Brazil. And so, you know, we just got this an eight-year-old boy he says, uh-huh, yeah. Okay. Years later, there's Pele, 17 years old, and he's surrounded by giants, Russians, and people trying to break his legs, and big people, and the coach screaming at him because he keeps flipping back into this Jenga, and the coach is trying to get them to play like Europeans and putting them under the law. Okay, I'm going to tell you the symbolism here that I saw. Trying to get them to do something that was not natural to them, and they couldn't do it, they were failing. Finally, Pele just breaks into that style of play, and the, the, the rest is history. He, um, th- th- he wins a World Cup. And he, interestingly, even at the last moment, this really happened, he fainted at the end of that game. But in the movie, his arms go out in a T, and he falls. And then he's promptly resurrected by his team, who hoists him up on their shoulders. I mean, the symbolism, they couldn't have thought that up. But to me, what made me weep, when I realized, not in a negative way, is that the the world is craving for justification. These people so much want to be felt to be valuable. You know, I'm accepted. In the beloved. They're just yearning for that. Well, a couple ways to read this psalm, I think. Number one, this may be said to describe the experience of both the believer and the unbeliever. If the psalm is applied to unbelievers, it speaks of those who are under the curse, and it serves as a sober warning That without repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that which the psalm describes is not only their present plight, but their eternal future. It's that bad. What this describes, this man is clearly a man under a curse. He's under the wrath of God. He's abandoned God's not talking to him. God's not answering this man. He is forgotten among the dead. Hell is eternal, it never ends. But they are forgotten. If instead the psalm is applied to believers, they're not under the curse. But they might be experiencing the symptoms of the curse. That doesn't mean you're under a curse. That doesn't mean you need to break a curse. It doesn't mean you need to to go through some deliverance session. It just means we're in a fallen world. And bad things happen in a fallen world. And, And, of course, the devil's there, too, to try to enforce that and put that on us. And that's why... You know what Pastor Steve was sharing this morning. We have to stand, stand, and withstand in the, in the evil day and take authority. But when the believer is going through th- things like that, uh, you know, they can know because of the historical fact that Jesus Christ came in the flesh went to Calvary, died on a Roman cross, and was resurrected from the dead. That is an historical proof and bona fide guarantee. He is the surety of our salvation. It is the guarantee of the covenant. And as believers, we can know that in spite of how things may seem, No matter what it is, no matter how dark it is, it is not the real abyss. (laughs) The hopeless, endless wrath of a God from which sinners never return. What a sobering thought. But that's not our place. And no matter what we go through, it will never be that bad. And what has been the worst thing of all, the, 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 the dear Lord Jesus, our dear Lord Jesus, has gone there. He has experienced what Heman was just tasting. Now, in Heman's life, things eventually worked out. But for the Lord Jesus, in a way in which we really cannot understand He really was forsaken. And you can say, yeah, but he was God. He knew everything would be all right. No, listen, dear heart. We just do not have the brain capacity to understand how God could suffer like this. There's a reason why God had to become a man. No one else could redeem us because no one else could pay that price. None of us have the moral rectitude or the wherewithal with which to pay our debt. Only the sinless, spotless Son of God could do that and endure the fierceness of that wrath. When you pay the penalty of 7 billion plus sinners... The best mental image I can think of, and it's, it pales, is there was a, the, a, 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 I saw this video they discovered from the Apollo era in the space program, never before seen. They, they, they found it. It was actually, I think, in the movie The Last Man in Space, The Last Man on the Moon. And they show footage of that reentry capsule. I think that that capsule is the fastest, nothing has ever traveled as fast as that capsule. It reentered the earth at about 27,000 miles per hour. And it's just a ball of fire. That heat shield, as it's hitting the atmosphere, it's just flames everywhere. That's what the Lord Jesus went through. And it was like an infinite suffering. In a finite period of time. When we realize. That's what we've been delivered from. Yeah. Therein lies the grace. Which is the source. For our own faithfulness. Under fire. It will never be that bad. And if, if you're in Christ. You've been raised with him. And you're coming out of that tunnel. You're coming out of that. That That grave. And that's what I told the Lord one of those times we were going through it. I said, Lord, if you were raised from the dead and you were, we're we were raised with you and we're coming through on the other side. Let me finish with this. Goldsworthy said this in, in applying any passage of scripture to ourselves. He said, ask this. How does this text in question relate to Christ and how do we relate to Christ? Um, Always ask, how does this psalm reflect about the Lord Jesus Christ? Amen. Um, I, don't you just love Jesus, you know, and you just can't get enough of this kind of uh, love. It, it's like I was saying about the books and the songs and the poems and so on, that they have some kind of redemptive theme. They hook you, don't they? Those are the movies, you know, that make you cry. Although men, we don't, we don't admit to that. But those are the ones that get you because it just resonates. Um, people, People are orphaned, and they're looking for a father. They're rejected, and they're looking for acceptance. They've been forgotten, and they want to be remembered. They're lost, and they want to be found. But we have been. That's the wonderful thing. We have been. Amen. Amen, amen. Well, you know, i t- just tell you something. I-, I purposed not to tell you this before, and I-, I think I can tell you this now. But, you know, I've been torn in these meetings because I know that people kind of want a revival-type meeting. And I thought, Lord, I'm just wrestling with this. And tonight I just gave in. I just felt... The Lord just wants me to teach this. Um, and I'm not apologizing for it because you, got, you have to flow with the anointing that's on you. Otherwise, it's just carnal. And, and you're, you're, you're forcing something to happen. Uh, so I, I thought, Lord, I'm going to quit trying to, you know, be uh, betwixt and between, between a revival-type meeting and between teaching. I mean, i just such as I have, give IV. And, but I believe this will stick to your ribs and it will stay with you. I pray it stay, and that as you drink from that well, you'll just continue to see it more and more. It is the expulsive power, Pastor Mark, of a new affection. Brother Steve, you wrote that title down, didn't you? And I was thinking, that is exactly what uh, some of the folks that you're ministering to would, would minister to them so deeply. And it's all gospel, it's all Jesus. And it's this love, this incredible, amazing love um, that casts out all fear and that uh, transforms us um, uh, into his own image. And and I think a good summary of uh, holiness is to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. And all of that, the headwaters of that is he first loved us. And he loved us in a concrete way. Specifically, God takes pains to spell it out by sending his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. That's God's love language with the human race. It is forgiveness. It's not vague. It's, I forgive you. Amazing. I realize now, when I was 19, I had a real experience with the love of God. I just... Never before, never after like that. It was so purposeful. I have trouble describing it with words. But it was the most purposeful, intentional, deliberate love. And it was so other than me. It was absolutely, it was for me but independent of me. It was absolutely, utterly, apart from anything I've done, good or bad. And just this morning or yesterday, I got some insight on that. I've I've thought about that often. It's like, you know, anything I say is going to fall short of it, but if God decides to love you, He's going to do it. I mean, He's not asking for your permission. He's not going to ask for a vote or what you think about it. He's... He's his own person. He's God. And we're not. And but I saw this through the cross today thinking, ah, that's why he could do that. Because I was nailed to the cross of Christ. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's because I was nailed to Calvary's tree. And and it's so wonderful how God can roll things out over 60 years. He doesn't tell you everything at once. He doesn't tell you everything He's done for you. You know, I, I've gotten better, but the day was. You know, my wife is, just takes such good care of me. And I might wash a dish or two, but boy, I want her to know it. <laughs> I, I want, I want the points in my love bank, honey. I did, I did the couple of dishes. I did. Did you see? I did the dishes. I did. The, well, she's doing diapers, dishes. You know, laundry day in, day out, every day, everything, and she never gives me a bill or a report. Say, you know, I did your, I did, I fed you again today, but you know, I do it. Maybe you know, back in those days, I'm better. I'm better. Believe me, I've improved. But back in those days, periodically, <laughs> let's say it that way. <laughs> That's nice and vague. I'd do a few dishes. I'd say, honey, do you know, I did the dishes. I, I never really got a, a, a much reaction out of that. You know, it's like, oh, really? <laughs> but God's not like that. It just astounds me that 40 years after the fact, I think, wait a minute. I, Lord, I see that. You did that. You never told me. You didn't come and say, Joe, look what I did. And this morning or yesterday, I can't remember what it was, I saw that's why God could be so deliberate, so unconditional. In his love for me, it was utterly unconditional. No strings attached, no ifs, ands, or buts. It's because he dealt with that on the cross. It was done, it is finished. Thank God. Heaven's gonna be fun, it's gonna be a great place. You know, um, we should close this. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, help me, I don't know how to pray right now, but I just pray for every person here. And if there might be one, I, you know, how many of you, let me ask this, how many of you, you're a Christian and you know you're a Christian, could I see your hand? That just makes it so easier, much easier. You're a Christian and you know you're a Christian. That's everybody. Lord, thank you, we're redeemed in the blood of the lamb. We're saved and we so much, we're so grateful to you. I ask you to open our eyes, the eyes of our understanding, enlighten the eyes of our understanding, that we may know the hope of your calling, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, the exceeding greatness of your power to those who believe, and strengthen us with power in the inward man so that we can apprehend and comprehend the love of God that surpasses knowing in Christ Jesus I ask you, Lord, that the cross would be more and more real and that our words would be formed by the cross. That when we speak to people, they would be cross-shaped, imbued, immersed in the work of the cross that gives all the glory and honor to you. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, Amen.